diagnose when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's As we all know, Superman is faster than a speeding bullet. Let's say he is twice as fast. So how long would it take him to fly from Montreal to Toronto? If you know the answer to that question, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, which is also the number to call for any science-related question you may have. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is chemistry. And uh, as I keep telling you, I believe that chemistry is the central science, the one that ties all the other sciences together. Because if you have a feel for what molecules are all about and the chemical reactions in which they can engage, you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. There's also a question that uh, we have uh hanging over from last week actually a couple the first one is who was the skeptical chemist i'm not uh mispronouncing that it was originally spelled c-h-y-m-i-s-t in an epic work the other question still out there is what machine operates without an inter without an external input of energy what machine operates without an external input of energy all right, so there are those two old questions that are hanging out, out there and uh, the question about how long it would take Superman flying twice as fast as a speeding bullet to fly from Montreal to Toronto. 514-790-0800 is our number. Do you think you would stand in line to have one of your teeth pulled without any anesthetic, no matter how much you were paid? I suspect not, but that was not the case in the late 1700s. When uh, lines of poor formed in front of Dr. John Hunter's home in uh, Leicester Square in uh, London, England. Now Hunter already at that time was a well-known anatomist. He was a famous physician and uh, word had gone out that he would be willing to pay handsomely for teeth freshly extracted from uh, a human jaw and why was he going to do this he was going to experiment with implanting that tooth into the gap-toothed non-smile of some rich person and of course people who were missing teeth and had money were willing to spend whatever it took in order to restore their mouth to a full complement of teeth and hunter thought that he had a chance of doing this why did he think so interesting story behind that he carried out a fascinating experiment with the comb of a rooster that's the the red uh kind of saw-like thing on the top of the rooster's head. And uh, he took a human tooth. He made an incision in the comb of the rooster, inserted the tooth to see what would happen. And he found that the uh, tissue from the comb 
actually enveloped the tooth and seemed to bind to it. And this gave him the idea of taking a tooth and actually insert it into the gum of a human to see whether or not uh, it would take, would, would bind. Now, of course, today we know that, that uh, uh, such a thing is, is really not, not possible, but of course they didn't know very much about science back in, in those days. And uh, so Hunter's idea was, was interesting, but where was he going to get the, the teeth? So he ended up uh, offering money. And uh, of course, there were plenty of poor people around uh, who were willing to give up a tooth for uh, a payment. Of course, it turned out that uh, this wasn't very successful. Uh, the teeth would not uh, really, uh, could not be properly inserted into, into the gum. The gum would not uh, form any kind of bond with the, the tooth. But nevertheless, it was an interesting idea. Uh, roosters uh, probably were not big fans of John Hunter and his experiments, uh, not because of this particular one, but uh, he also carried out experiments with the testicles of, of roosters. And uh, the testicles, uh, surprisingly, I think for many people, uh, of a rooster are not external. They are inside its abdominal uh, cavity. In any case, uh, Hunter would remove some of the, uh, uh, would remove the testicles from a rooster to see what would happen. And he found that the comb of the rooster collapsed. That was an interesting observation, but even more interesting was um, the observation that when he reinserted this uh, severed testicle back into the abdominal cavity, the comb of the rooster was restored. It once again became erect. This actually was the beginning of hormonal therapy, although Hunter, of course, did not realize that. The uh, testicle released testosterone, and testosterone is what is responsible for the maintenance of the comb of the rooster, which is actually a, a sexual appendage because it is what attracts the, uh, the female to be mated with. Hunter was uh, a very interesting uh, man, and uh, he uh, carried out a lot of uh, experiments in anatomy. He documented much of the human body's uh, anatomy. And there's a, a museum in London, the Hunterian Museum, which is absolutely fascinating, where there are uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of anatomical specimens that had been originally prepared by, uh, by Hunter. Uh, some of these are, are somewhat questionable. There's a, a skeleton there, which is very controversial. It's a skeleton of uh, Charles Byrne, who was an Irish giant. He was seven foot seven inches tall. And uh, Hunter wanted to have his skeleton uh, in his uh, museum. He actually started his own museum in his, in his house. And he conspired to have the man's body stolen on the way to his funeral. And uh, the skeleton of Charles Byrne is exhibited today, as I said, controversially, in the Hunterian uh, Museum. But Hunter learned a great deal from his uh, anatomical studies on, on corpses. He also was sometimes in league with grave robbers in order to get um, uh, bodies for his studies. <clears throat> anyway, Hunter's transplanted teeth never adhered properly to bone and did not fare well. And uh, to this day, no tooth transplants have been successfully performed. However, of course, we do have implanted teeth. And this has been a, a really uh, monumental uh, 
advance in uh, dentistry. It actually goes back to the early days of the 20th century when the research team in Great Britain, as well as one in the United States, uh, had been experimenting with metal implants in orthopedic surgery. Uh, you know, sometimes it is very difficult to, to get broken bones to heal if the fracture has been a, a compound fracture. And they, you know, often have to put in a, a metal plate. And the question was, you know, how to do this, what kind of metals to use. And both these research groups had noted that uh, titanium, which is a metal, adheres very strongly to, to bone. But it would be a Swedish professor of anatomy, Per Ingvar Brannemark, who would capitalize on this property of titanium by carrying out the prototype dental implant that launched a host of experiments that eventually culminated in the successful implant technology that is in use today. It's a fascinating story because Brannemark originally had no interest in dentistry. His uh, focus was on uh, studying the circulation of blood. And he was particularly interested in uh, what uh, blood does inside of bones. And in order to study this, he actually devised a little gizmo, which was a, a tube that had a lens attached to it. And he would insert this into the uh, leg bone of a rabbit. And he would then attach a microscope to, to the lens so that he could look, literally look into the bone of the, of the rabbit. Because he already knew that titanium had been used in, in uh, these surgical experiments that I, I mentioned, that's what he formulated his little gizmo uh, out of so that it would not be rejected by the bone. So he carried out his experiments. He studied the uh, uh, microcirculation in the bone. He published a number of papers on it. But his real discovery, which was sort of an accident discovery, came when he wanted to remove this device from the bone of the rabbit. And he struggled and he struggled and he couldn't pull it out because the titanium had fused to the bone. This is when he had an idea. And the idea was the dental implant because he knew that, that scientists and dentists in particular had been struggling with how to replace missing teeth. And he thought that here was a real opportunity. So he uh, unleashed a number of experiments, uh, seeing whether or not uh, metallic titanium could indeed be inserted into the jawbone. At first, of course, he did it on skeletal bone. And then in 1965 came the epic experiment where he had four titanium implants implanted surgically uh, into the jawbone of Gosta Larsen a Swedish gentleman who had been born uh, with a, a deformity of the lower jaw and had no teeth. So obviously he had struggled with eating. Uh, it was a terrible life. But the implanted titanium screws then could be used to attach artificial teeth. And those teeth worked for about 40 years when uh, Larson died. They served him very well. It took uh, about a decade, though, until Brannemark's uh, research was accepted and dentists started to do their own experiments with implants. And uh, today, of course, uh, uh, we have uh, millions of people who are again enjoying a smile because of uh, the possibility of uh, implanted teeth all started because of Brannemark's work 
with the leg bone of a rabbit. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's an absurd allegation floating around the internet that uh, people who have been vaccinated for COVID-19 shed viral particles that can cause disease in others. And uh, uh, some schools actually in in Florida have uh, banned teachers who were vaccinated because of the worry that they would then infect children. This nonsense is being spread by a totally unethical group called America's Frontline Doctors. And it is very hard to understand how people who have been educated can be so ill-informed about science. Uh, They're the ones who made a splash last summer when they hosted this uh, uh, mini press conference in front of the Supreme Court in in the uh, building uh, in, in Washington with the claim that hydroxychloroquine was the answer to COVID-19 and that uh, the government was hiding this information. No, the government was not hiding any information. We have now had an overwhelming number of studies that show disappointingly, I mean, we would all love to see that, that there's something that works. I'd love to tell you that hydroxychloroquine works, but these studies have shown that it doesn't. And the states that have stockpiled hydroxychloroquine Uh, because they thought it would work, now are getting rid of their stockpiles. Now America's frontline doctors, uh, led by some very, very questionable people like Simone Gold, uh, who was uh, in fact arrested for the role that she played in the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection, uh, uh, who has been banned by Facebook, uh, because of the the nonsensical uh, claims being made about uh, about the vaccines, and uh, uh, another uh, lady uh, who claims that there's research being done uh, to develop a vaccine that will make people not be religious. And these are kind of people that that are in uh, you know part of America's frontline doctors, and now they are spreading this this nonsense. Uh, that uh, people who have been uh, vaccinated uh, are putting others at at risk because they're shedding viral particles. No, there are no viral particles being shed. The uh, vaccines do not use the active virus. The messenger RNA vaccines that Moderna and Pfizer use have no uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. The only thing that they do is they code for a protein that is found in the virus, triggering the human body to make antibodies to that, uh, to that protein. So when the real virus is encountered, these antibodies will recognize the spike protein on its surface, will bind to it and prevent the viral particle from uh, entering a human cell, which is the only place where it can replicate. But there's no active viral particle that is being shed by anyone who has been vaccinated. I mean, this is the, the, the kind of nonsense that it's even hard to know how to argue against it. You know, how, how do you argue with people who say that the earth is flat or that we never landed on the moon? 
which are you know scientifically just ridiculous uh, uh, suggestions, not, not even worth bothering with. The only reason that this one is worth bothering with is because we do already have vaccine hesitancy. And uh, that vaccine hesitancy is dangerous because the only chance that we have of reaching herd immunity and climbing out of the dark hole that we have sunk into here with COVID-19 is by getting enough people uh, vaccinated. That's the chance that we have. And vaccines do work. We see this. We see that everywhere where uh, vaccination uh, incidence has increased, we see a decline in, in positive findings. We see a decline in hospitalizations. We're seeing it uh, here in Quebec as well. And uh, the prototype experiment really is Israel, where they have been very, very good at uh, vaccinating. They have a high percentage of, uh, of vaccines, of vaccinated people, and hospitalizations have uh, virtually disappeared because of, uh, of COVID-19. Uh, so the vaccines work. And now we have uh, some interesting uh, experiments, although not yet totally conclusive, but highly suggestive that people who are vaccinated are also less likely to infect other people. Uh, this has been an ongoing question uh, of whether or not if we are protected ourselves uh, by a vaccine, meaning that we're less likely to get sick and certainly a lot less likely to be hospitalized, uh, does it mean that uh, uh, we don't harbor any virus that can be spread to others? And uh, of course, uh, in, in theory, one cannot rule that out because if we have uh, antibodies that work against the virus, uh, that doesn't mean that that virus, which is in the body but uh, cannot make us sick because it cannot enter uh, cells, it doesn't mean that that virus cannot be shed and uh, you know, infect others. Uh, so we're talking about, you know, an active infection here that is symptom asymptomatic. And that can happen uh, even in vaccinated uh, people. I mean, you come into contact with the virus, the virus gets into your body. It's not going to do you any harm because you've been vaccinated, but uh, perhaps it can be shed to others. We have a, a major study being done in England now uh, that has looked at um, households where people have been vaccinated and households where people have not been vaccinated. And they have shown statistically that there is uh, half as great a chance of transmission in uh, households where someone has been vaccinated. So not only does it protect people from getting sick, not only does it protect people from being hospitalized, but it reduces the chance that an infection can be transmitted. So uh, here's another point for the benefits of getting vaccinated. And uh, day by day, we're seeing that vaccination works. And that's why it is uh, so upsetting when you have uh, people like Joe Mercola, who is one of the biggest uh, scientific criminals, as far as I'm concerned, who's got a major website and uh, uh, he spreads all kinds of information about conspiracy theories, about how we have been totally misled about uh, uh, the disease and about uh, how vaccines don't really work. This is really criminal activity. And, and uh, uh, of, of course, uh, he has been taken, challenged by Food and Drug Administration. He has been told that he has to take off of his website the, the claims that his supplements uh, can prevent disease. Uh, but he still keeps making the same kind of, of claims. And he will, you know, he'll pay his fines 
and it's still worthwhile for him to uh, to go on because he makes so much money selling all his uh, supplements. And now uh, a new book that he has just published, uh, which is the truth about COVID-19. And any time that you see a title like that, the truth about something, the chances are that you're not going to get the truth at all. And uh, I've looked a little bit at Mercola's book. Uh, I can't look too much because it just makes me sick to the stomach to see all of the nonsense that he spouts there. Uh, but it is really dangerous because I know that there are a large number of people who believe in, in these uh, conspiracy uh, theories. And this, of course, is undermining the chance that we're going to get back to some form of, uh, of normalcy. So just to summarize here, the idea that people are shedding uh, some form of the virus or part of the virus that can cause disease in someone else is absolutely not factual. It does not make any kind of theoretical sense. Uh, no one is saying that all vaccines are 100% safe and certainly they're not 100% effective. However, when we look at the epidemiology, when we look at the statistics, the question you have to ask do we have enough evidence to show that the benefits outweigh the risks? And the answer to that question, without a doubt, is yes. Yes, there are some risks. The benefits greatly outweigh these. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We're going to check the CTV news, and we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Okay, let me review the questions that are still out there. Hanging over from last week, who was the skeptical chemist? C-H-Y-M-I-S-T give you a clue that goes back to the 17th century. What machine operates without an external input of energy? And Superman is faster than a speeding bullet. Let's say he's twice as fast. How long would it take for him to fly from Montreal to Toronto? All right, so those are the questions that are uh, out there for you to puzzle over. I think someone may have an answer. Uh, do we have John on the line? Hi, Dr. Hi. Joe. Yeah. So I'm I'm making some assumptions here. Full disclosure, I had to look up the speed uh, speed of a bullet. Okay. <laughs> and I'm assuming uh, it's uh, because it's a, it's a wide range. So I took 1,200 miles an hour as uh, as an average. Okay, Crazy. that's kind of a slow bullet, but all right. Okay. Okay. Well, assuming 1,200 miles an hour. Yeah. And uh, I, I came up with uh, eight minutes and forty-five seconds. Yeah, I'm, I'm you're, you're, making... that would be that would be correct if you're assuming the twelve hundred miles per hour. I, I think that's a little low. Uh, I, I think seventeen hundred miles per hour is is closer to what the bullet flies. So that would mean that Superman flies at thirty-four hundred miles per hour, and Montreal, Toronto is about three hundred forty miles. So it would take him one tenth of an hour or six minutes uh, to fly. But but yeah, I mean you're right. According to your calculation, uh, eight minutes would be right. But you're dealing but with a pretty s slow bullet. Pretty there. slow bullet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but good thing. Good thinking though. 
All right. Thank you. I enjoy your okay. show. Thank uh, you very much. Uh, let me just give you uh, a couple of interesting uh, points of reference for for speed. Uh, the Earth travels around the sun at 66,000 miles per hour. So that is about 20 times the speed of Superman. And we know Superman flies pretty fast, right? Faster than a speeding bullet. But the Earth goes around the sun 20 times faster than that. Uh, some other interesting uh, sort of landmarks is the speed of sound. That's about 760 miles per hour. Uh, then the uh, the speed at which a cheetah can run, which is the fastest land animal, that's about 70 miles per hour. Horses, uh, for example, in, in races like the Kentucky Derby or the Preakness or the upcoming Belmont, uh, the horses run at around 37 miles per hour. How does that compare to humans? Well, people can't run as fast as a cheetah and not even as fast as a horse. Uh, the record for a human is about 28 miles per hour. Guess who that is? Yes, it is Usain Bolt. And that speed of 28 miles per hour was measured between meter 60 and meter 80 of a 100 meter uh, run. And that was at the World uh, Championship in Berlin in 2009. And his average speed over that uh, uh, course, the 100 meters, was 23.35 miles per hour. So we are slower than uh, horses, certainly slower than cheetahs, uh, and uh, obviously much, much slower than what Superman flies. But if you want real speed, that is the speed of light, 186,000 miles, not per hour, per second. And that, of course, is uh, uh, almost inconceivable uh, as a speed. 186 uh, miles per um, per second. All right, so at least we got the uh, uh, Superman story uh, correct there. So we still have the other questions hanging, but I, I will now replace the Superman question with another one. Why during the American Civil War were bats important to the Confederacy? So during the American Civil War, bats were important to the Confederacy uh, and uh, why is that the case? Now, I have a couple of uh, uh, questions that were uh, uh, texted in, and uh, uh, somebody wants to know the risks of vaccination for 16-year-olds. says, I've been vaccinated, however, I'm afraid to vaccinate my 16-year-old uh, because how this may affect uh, him in the future. Now, once again, uh, none of us has a, a crystal ball, so we don't know exactly what the future will bring. However, based on um, what we know about vaccination research, which of course now <laughs> vaccination research goes back to the 1700s and Edward Jenner and smallpox, we have an awful lot of data, great deal of knowledge about vaccination. And it is very unlikely to have any kind of long-term effect, negative effect. Uh, whenever uh, ill effects of uh, vaccination have cropped up, they have been uh, pretty immediate after the vaccination. Uh, sometimes within minutes, uh, we have had, you know, examples of anaphylactic shock, uh, examples of Bell's palsy. So stuff can happen, but but uh, it happens soon after the vaccination, not certainly not years later. Uh, so based upon everything that I 
know uh, from you know looking into the science of this, uh, I would not hesitate in having my 16-year-old uh, uh, vaccinated. Again, I, I think the benefits outweigh the risks. Uh, then we have a, a much, uh, certainly a very relevant question uh, about uh, what do we do about these crazy theories like, you know, shedding of viral uh, particles. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't work to call these people ignorant, call them names, even though, you know, I mean, uh, it just, uh, uh, you get so riled up when you see some of this thing that, that you know, you just sort of innately want to use those kind of words. But I know it, it doesn't work because uh, they just dig deeper into their entrenched position. So what, what do we do? How do we convince people who believe that there's some sort of, you know, conspiracy between government and big pharma, et cetera, to, to undermine the health of the public? Uh, why? So that they can somehow line their their pro, uh, pockets. Uh, obviously, I don't have a, a real good answer to this question, which comes up uh, very often. How, how, how do we fight uh, the nonsense? How do we convince them? Uh, first thing to do is to tell uh, these people who have the questions, you know, uh, to look into who is making the claims, who they are, what their background is, and whether or not they stand to make any money from the claims that they are making. So you look into someone like Mercola. Uh, he uh, uh, originally was trained as an osteopathic physician, hasn't practiced for, for decades. But, you know, osteopathy doesn't really train you in terms of, of epidemiology or, you know, or virology. Uh, and of course, he also has uh, a whole shop on his website where he sells all kinds of supplements. And as I said, now he's selling a, a book. So there certainly is money to be made by uh, you know, um, talking about uh, you know, the, his uh, uh, cockamamie theories uh, about uh, conspiracy. So always be skeptical when someone is going to make money off of what they are saying. I, I also think it's important to look at uh, people's backgrounds and take a look at who is on uh, each side of this, you know, sort of, of battle, where, you know, on, on one side, you have people like Dr. Fauci, with 50 years experience, with hundreds of research papers uh, published, uh, you know, kind of revered around the world in scientific community. You have all sorts of researchers in, in uh, uh, you know, high-level educational institutions, uh, who publish in this this area, who have profound knowledge. And on the other hand, you have people like, you know, the, the uh, frontline physicians uh, who are either ophthalmologists or general practitioners who really do not have any expertise in any relevant uh, area, uh, but nevertheless uh, garner a lot of publicity because they just say such outrageous things. And uh, outrageous things get the media's attention. Uh, so, no, I, I don't have a real concrete answer to how to handle all of this. But I think looking to see if someone has um, uh, the ability to make money off of what they are saying and to look deeply into the credibility of the people by looking at their history, looking where they work, what are the institutions at which, which, they, uh, which they work. 
what they have, you know, in terms of experience, uh, uh, what have they published? What awards have they won? I mean, you just look into all of this and you become certainly uh, cognizant of the fact that the uh, researchers who work in the area of, of uh, you know, of vaccines know a lot more about all of this than people who are kind of looking at the outside and whose degree come from the uh, University of Google. Okay, we're going to take a little break here. We'll check traffic and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figure it out what's true. Yeah, yeah, just figure out what's true. And uh, you need science to do that. All right, uh, Judy on the line. Judy. Hi. Hi. I have a question for you. Maybe you okay. can answer. In the, I think it was the National Post uh, reported that Bill Maher had two vaccines and tested positive. So what happens then? Uh, this is something that we call breakthrough. And of course it happens because the, the vaccine is not 100% uh, effective. You know, we, we talk about the efficacy and the effectiveness of vaccines. These are the same. Uh, efficacy is what uh, is found in, in a trial. And in the Pfizer and Moderna trials, it was, you know, around 95%. Effectiveness is what we then see in the general population, which usually is somewhat less than what you see in, in trials, uh, because in the general population, you, you have everybody. You have old people, you have sick people, etc. So the effectiveness usually uh, goes down. But uh, let, let's consider the 90%. So even if you have 90% effectiveness, it still means that 10% of the people are, are not protected. And 10% of the population can be quite large. You know, I mean, if you uh, consider in North America, we have, you know, let's say eventually we'll have 300 million people uh, vaccinated, uh, 30 million of those uh, will not be effectively vaccinated. That's just the way things work. I mean, nothing is, you know, 100% uh, effective. Uh, so no one should be that surprised that individuals such, such as, uh, as Bill Maher even though they have been properly uh, vaccinated, can still be infected. However, it is very unlikely that that uh, with such an infection you would get very sick, because the evidence is is you know just uh, overwhelming that the vaccine protects you from being really really sick. So even though you may even you know after being doubly vaccinated you may develop uh, some symptoms. It is not going to be, you know, critical. So no one should get the idea that a vaccine totally protects and that therefore, uh, you know, life goes back to being exactly like it was before COVID-19. No, that's not the case. Uh, the situation is that that there is very significant protection. You are not likely to, to get sick, but no vaccine can guarantee that uh, you will not be infected. And uh, Bill Maher uh, now is an example uh, of that. 
Uh, I'm glad though to hear that Bill Maher did have two vaccines because you know in in the past he had some um, rather uncomplimentary words to say about uh, vaccines, and it was always a puzzle to me how someone who is as clever as as Bill Maher, if you've you know listened to his monologues and looked at some of his works and and you know the uh, a documentary on religion that he produced, you know. Uh, how someone like that can still have uh, some hesitancy about vaccines. Now, apparently not about this one, but uh, he, he's spoken, uh, you know, in the past uh, uh, some with some irreverence about the MMR vaccine. Anyway, uh, bottom line is that you can be vaccinated, but you can still be infected. Okay, let's go to David. Hi, Dr. Hi. Joe. Yes, I wanted to um, uh, answer the uh, question of, of why why were, were the Confederate States um, okay so concerned about the the uh, the bat cave right <clears throat> and so my understanding is that uh, bat guano which is the bat droppings um, contains saltpeter which is one of the ingredients for gunpowder and at the time there was a blockade of the um, the sea access, the seaports in the Confederate States uh, by the Union um, Navy, the United States Navy. So uh, there was very, very few um, deliveries of any chemicals would be allowed through. So uh, they actually uh, had to guard some of these caves where there were there were large deposits of the essential uh, product to make uh, gunpowder. Very good. That is exactly right. I mean, bats uh, poop a lot in those bat caves, and their poop, or guano, is a very good source of nitrates. And that, of course, was needed to make gunpowder. And as you say, the unions blockaded the ports, so the Confederacy did not have access. Do you know where the access would have come from before the blockade? Very, very few. Sorry. Yeah, where where would they have uh, wanted to import it from? Uh, they were getting a lot of the, of, of uh, materials from Great Britain. They had some. Uh, no, the source of guano was not Great Britain. Great Britain was actually importing a lot of of guano. Oh, I, I is, see. I see. Yeah, um, there would be. Uh, lots of places in um, the South Pacific where there's tremendous um, amounts of bat guano. And yes, there, there's one one country specifically that was extremely rich in, in guano in oh South goodness. America. <laughs> You've got me there. South yeah, America. it was Peru. Peru was okay. the, the single largest source of, of guano. A lot of islands uh, off Peru, which uh, were, you know, home to uh, seabirds. And uh, especially something called the Peruvian booby. And what a name that is, the Peruvian booby. And this booby is a bird, and uh, it uh, defecates a lot. And uh, there are a lot of uh, booby poop all over that uh, Peru was uh, using, and they were exporting it to both to the United States and, and to Europe. But of course, as you suggested, the blockade by the Union troops prevented that. So the Confederates had to look for alternate sources and, and found it in caves where bats live because, of course, they produce a, a great deal of, of guano. Uh, very good. Uh, and uh, even, you know, after the Civil War, uh, 
production of uh, of uh, saltpeter from guano uh, kept on in in the United States, especially in in Texas. Uh, there were large bat caves, and uh, they were um, the source of saltpeter until the 1930s, when uh, the uh, demand for saltpeter faded. And that faded because in Germany, Fritz Haber had introduced the Haber process, labor, later called the Haber-Bosch process, uh, of making uh, ammonia from nitrogen and, uh, and hydrogen. And ammonia can be converted to ammonium nitrate, which is the uh, classic uh, fertilizer that has um, uh, saved uh, a lot of lives in the world from starvation through the Green Revolution. And uh, that also meant essentially the end of mining of guano in, in caves and uh, uh, no longer the need to harvest the poop of the Peruvian booby. All right. Well, that is it for today. We have uh, run out of time and uh, we have just one question that we will leave hanging over till next week. I'm surprised that this hasn't been answered. And that is what machine operates without an external input of energy? You've been listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.